Hello and welcome to the Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. In this series, I want to explore how the coronavirus has and is changing the ways in which we live. From its impact on our social, psychological and physical well-being, to its effect on our businesses, economies, our cultures and the climate. Crucially, at the heart of my inquiry, I want to unearth what unexpected opportunities this situation may bring, not only for our own lives, but also for the ways in which we want to build our future. I hope you'll join me as we dive into these big questions. And as always, if you'd like to know more, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash the high podcast. And you can also reach out to me personally on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. And if there's anyone you know who's really struggling right now, who you feel might be supported by the topics and themes and conversations that we hold within this podcast, please do send them a link. Thank you again for joining me in this strange time. I hope you enjoy the show. In today's show, I'm doing something a bit different. This week, I was invited by the lovely Manda Scott to join her in conversation on her podcast, Accidental Gods, and we decided it would be lovely to share it with all of our listeners across both platforms. In this conversation, we explore what it means to be human under the lockdown and how we might grasp this moment in ways that will support and nourish us when we emerge on the other side without feeling guilt-tripped or even more exhausted in the process. If you're not familiar with her work, Manda is a best-selling author of the Boudicca Dreaming series. She's a columnist and teacher, and her new platform, AccidentalGods.life, explores how we might transform ourselves and evolve our conscious engagement with the living world. Having started her professional life as a veterinary surgeon specialising in neonatal equine intensive care, she brings a passionate scientific perspective to the deeper existential questions of life, and her thoughtful approach often opens up to unexpected and fascinating lines of inquiry. Now, technology being as it is, my recording setup decided to cack its pants this week, and so my audio is a little bit less than perfect, for which I apologise, despite the post-production wizardry by Caro C, who valiantly edited this show. Manda's voice, however, is still as beautiful as usual, so you'll be able to enjoy that at least. This was a really rich conversation for me, and I hope you enjoy our discussion as much as we did. Next week, The Hive will be back to normal with another wonderful guest. But for now, enjoy the show. So this is going out on both of our podcasts. We're recording on 17th of April, which is midway through week four of lockdown in Britain. How long is it lockdown in Spain for you, Natalie? We're just one week ahead, I think. So, yeah, coming up right. to the end so of week five. Week five. Yeah. And do they have a rolling... Do you have... Have you been told you've got another X amount of time or is it just it's going on till it finishes? Um, it's fairly ambiguous at the moment. I mean, I think at the moment people are talking about... Um, mid-May being when schools may or may not reopen and that's kind of like a a baseline for or a proxy for everything else opening up some shops have gone back to work but no everything for the time being is still pretty uncertain in terms of lockdown and when it will end and how does it feel for you (laughs) um mixed it feels I mean on the one hand I have layers of response on the one hand 
I feel like I've settled into this. Um, it does help that it's sunny here most of the time, so I can look out of the of the window and, and have that at least. Um, people here are also very uh, supportive of one another. So every evening at eight o'clock, since the first day of lockdown, people come to their balconies and clap. And on the weekends, on Fridays and Sundays, there's lots of music that's put on by one of our local neighbours and people join in from the very young to the very old. So it feels connected. Um, but I do think that there is, sort of, I was talking about this with some of the, the guests on, on the Hive podcast, um, there does seem to be waves of response internally. So for instance, initially, I was very eager to get the Hive podcast new season going and let's help people and be all, you know, proactive. And in the last two weeks, I've been thinking, oh, God, do I know where's my motivation dipped? And what happens out of this? And so, yeah, it's, um, it's mixed. But uh, yeah, I feel like I'm adjusting to the fluctuations as they come. How is it for you at the moment? How does it feel like for you? I think very similar. I had this bizarre idea that it was going to feel like downtime, partly because <laughs> right at the beginning I was supposed to, I had this kind of schedule from hell, whereas I was supposed to be teaching at <laughs> Schumacher for three days, then home for a day, then teaching a foundation course for three days, then home for three days, and then off to Ireland oh. to teach. And I was so not looking forward. I mean, each of the individual bits I would have loved, but the actual mm. crashing of them all together, I was going to be very, very tired by the end of it. <laughs> and and then lockdown happens. Like, oh, dear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to stay home. Um, and I deliberately didn't take those things off my calendar so that Calendly could not book in mentoring calls or anything over <laughs> the top of them. And I thought, right, I'm just going to go full Daniel. And uh, Daniel Thorson is my god of uh, the guy who does emerge. <laughs> I'm just going to do 10 hours of meditation a day for a few days and just just really. And no, no, because I yeah, we're on a small holding. When I'm here, you know, there's there's animals to sort. And and stuff happens. And and I haven't had my, I, I think the most I've had is three hours one day. That's good going. <laughs> well, yes, I know, but it's not quite what I had in mind. I had this, and, and then, and like you, it's the, okay, what can we do? Because I am aware, you know, I, I live on the borders between England and Wales. Mm. We have 13 acres that we manage. And then, yeah, I live on a hill. I can go and walk for hours mm. and meet nobody. Oh, and it's you. such a privilege. Mm. And and so I'm very aware that there are people, you know, in the 10th floor of, of a tower block with five kids and two bedrooms and an abusive partner Oof, yeah. for whom this must be actual living, if not yes. fatal, hell. Mm. Um, and yet being consumed with guilt isn't necessarily the most constructive mm. of the options that I could bring. And um, so what can I do with this? Mm. And I, I don't know about you, but I found my emails have increased by orders of magnitude. Yeah. <laughs> and and the really interesting Zoom calls and webinars that I could be on. I've I've done more Zoom calls in the last three weeks than, than the sum total of the rest of my life. And it's not that I wasn't <laughs> Zooming. It's just that there have been, you know, every evening there's at least one. Mm. Um, and most of them are saying this is the biggest opportunity we have ever had to change the trajectory mm. of our civilization. How do we do this? Mm. And so I exist in this bubble that goes, okay, guys, we have to make the world different. And then we had a webinar with Accidental Gods last night and, and most of the people there were saying they're surrounded by people who are desperate to get back to mm. normal. Yeah, yeah. And so... I realise how much 
that's the other 99%. Mm. And I think it would be I a bit of me if I let myself. Uh, there's a bit that is in the back of my bus that's just curled up in a fetal position in a corner screaming mm. at the possibility that we might go back to business as usual. Yes, yes. Because this feels like such a, an opportunity. I, I, one of... One of the early Zoom calls, Molly Scott Cato was there, who a, was a green MEP for the South West when we had MEPs. Mm. The good old days. Um, <laughs> and she's also an economist. And she said that in her green economic circles, they had likened the what we needed to do in terms of taking the fossil fuel-led, extractivist, consumerist economy and changing it to what we needed was like taking a Boeing 747 you know, at, at full height across the Atlantic and turning it into a helicopter in midair, mm. which is going to fall out of the sky. You you can't do that. And she said, but the 747 has landed. You know, it's changed everything. Mm. We are, all of the things that, that people like Extinction Rebellion have been going, you know, this may need to happen. And everybody else was going, well, it just can't. Mm. Have happened. Yeah. The economy has effectively stopped. But I think the tricky thing is that um, I have so many mixed feelings about that. I think on the one hand, my my overarching feeling is, oh, my God, we get this window of time to actually choose something consciously different because everything is on pause. Uh, Well, most of most things are on pause. Obviously, there are certain things that are in overdrive, like our hospitals and food production and a couple of other industries. But there is so much that is on pause that actually it gives us the time and the space if we want to lean into it to do the hard thinking and, okay, how do we rebuild out of this? What do things look like? Um, but I also wonder, it's, it's, it's hard because I think on the other side there is this sense of, well, is this what it takes for humanity to change course? And, of course, if you look at the mm. biggest changes in history when people who have been a vocal minority have had to stand up for higher ethical values being embodied in civic life, whether that's the suffragettes, whether that's people, black Asian minorities standing up for their rights, uh, whatever it might be. Just ending slavery. Yes. All of these watershed moments, millions of people have suffered and died in order for these things to, to come to pass. And so I think on the one hand, like, I don't know, I find the suffering very difficult to countenance. And yet, in the same breath, while all of the suffering is happening, it would be churlish and it would be a shirking of responsibility, I think, to not make the most of the opportunities if we are lucky enough to be in a position where we have those opportunities. Um, But I do definitely worry about, you know, I think it's fine. I can have these conversations with people. I have some savings. I don't have to worry about my mortgage defaulting right now. But if I did... I wouldn't have the bandwidth. I'm not anywhere near being enlightened enough to be able to to sit with, you know, the world falling about my ears and think, yeah, I'm going to be fine. So, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yes. And and so, so exactly, it seems to me that those of us with the privilege have, or I feel I have a duty to at least explore the possibilities of, because a lot of people's lives, it's not as if people's lives have become absolutely untenable mm. as a result of the coronavirus. A lot of people's lives were absolute, absolutely untenable anyway. Mm. And we were heading for the the, the climate and ecological mm. cliff edge that is, that from which there is no stepping back. You know, the thing about this is, this is probably not a permanent 
lockdown. Yes. It's it's been severe. It's been the actual definition of acute, which is, you know, that sudden onset rather than chronic, which is long term. Mm. But but the system wasn't working. And and I'm really interested. This is a slight rabbit hole, but I'd <laughs> like to take it anyway. That you said food production is ramping up because I read a an article on Wired this morning, which is one of my go-to sources now for what's actually happening as opposed to what the BBC is telling me is happening. Mm. Um, and they're saying that, so in, in Britain, dairy farmers are basically being paid to not produce. Oh, that's fascinating. Because, because a lot of, where 50% of their production used to go to restaurants and mm. hotels and cafes mm. and, and which are not requiring it anymore. Um, and and you can't just tell a cow to stop milking. No. People are drying off their cows, but once you've dried off your cow, then you have to get her back in calf and then you have to wait until the calf arrives. You can't just turn it off and turn it on again. Um, and, and in Britain, we, you know, we have the self-inflicted chaos of Brexit and we've <laughs> just had to fly in plane loads of East European workers to begin to sort out having some food because, yeah. strangely enough, all those jobs that they were, quote, taking, mm. nobody else wanted, wanted. to do. Yeah. <laughs> it holds up a mirror, doesn't it? Oh, it really does. And and I'm so I'm really working hard locally. Um, I was already talking about local resilience networks as being, for me, there was a triad of we need to sequester carbon in the land. We need to massively reverse the destruction of the biosphere that agriculture is is creating, and we need local food resilience networks. And and you know, so back in November, I was going because when the supermarkets have empty shelves, you're going to wish we'd been planting. And people yes. just look at me like, you're just very <laughs> weird. And now I now I don't even have to say the word empty shelves. I'm going. I think food resilience might be a useful thing. Yeah. And they're going, yeah, that's right, yes, um, because you know, Africa's having actual plagues of actual locusts at the yes, moment. Yes, yeah. And India has Modi and they've just, they've not harvested and they're not planting. So that's two major continents look like they're going to have no food by the back end of the year. And that's our total food supply. It is. I think that the other thing is just it's so overwhelming. Yeah. So so I'm interested that Spain is massively producing food because I think that's going to be quite crucial. I wonder about this because like we're in the in Catalonia where I live, there's a lot of food production um, that gets exported to other countries. You know, the UK, mm. well, yeah, they do a lot mm. of importing for their food. But here I've, I've noticed and also on social media channels, so many of my friends are now talking about learning how to make bread for the first time, which we also yes. had to do the other day. Yes. Planting yes. seeds, like instead of chucking yes. out, I've, I've done this with um, a pepper head. There was a pepper head that sprouted. And so I took oh, the yeah. whole head and shoved it in a pot, covered it. And now I've got two little seedlings coming up. So things like this, a lot of my friends are, are having to right. rediscover on even the tiniest level what it means to be in direct contact with the source of life, the source of food. Yes. And I wonder how much, you know, yes, on a macro scale, it's going to be extraordinary to see how things unfold in different countries. And also at the, the smallest level, how are people re-engaging with, you know, what sustains us? So my brother, for instance, mm. has bought a bunch of fruit trees that he's planted in his back garden. And so I wonder if there's going to be a culture shift. But of course, this has to happen swiftly enough for lasting change to happen. So and for that to happen, yeah. I think this lockdown period, however long it is, and the after effects and whatever we build now, also has to be of a long enough duration for new habits to form, for cultural norms to shift and create a new baseline that does 
form a more solid foundation for expectations of how we want to come out. So I think if we think about yes. things like the universal basic income, which has been bandied around for such a long time, and a lot of people have said, well, you know, in modern democracies, you have to vote for these things, no one's going to vote for it. And of course, now you've got democracies making overnight decisions on how to manage their citizens, including bailing out self-employed people, which took a little while, but it's now happening. So all of these big changes that people said, well, it's not, it's not going to happen, it's not possible... Yeah, in the absolutely. space of a month, it's happened yes. across yes, the, the world. Yes, the magic money tree has sprouted. The one yeah. that they said didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But then it's yeah. going to be really yeah. hard to roll that back. So when we do have some yes. version of yes. universal basic income and people realise that there are other ways of doing things, well, what else then becomes possible? Yes. Yes. There was a very interesting thread on Twitter this morning. There's a woman called Dr. Emma Kavanagh who's... Uh, um, Military and police psychologist. Oh, fascinating. I've retweeted it. You can find it on my Twitter thread. But she says, OK, so another three weeks, let's talk about it, about where we are now. Mm. This bit, this is a different psychological phase. We've passed through the initial shock of finding ourselves in a global pandemic. We've built some kind of new normal, uncomfortable though it may be. Mm. The psychological struggle in this new phase is a different one. Mm. And she goes on through that. And part of it is... In this phase, it's common to feel exhausted and burnt out. Remember, your brain is still working very hard to process all this. This is inherently tiring. But there's the the understanding now. She says, we may feel disillusioned and hopeless, like this will never end, that life will never go back to normal. And I'm seeing that, I think, in our in the political discourse, such as it is, <laughs> where they certainly in the UK and, and obviously the US, the, the countries where I understand the language, they started off in denial. Um, you know, this is basically flu. We're just going to ignore this and it'll all go away. And then they kind of went into shock of, OK, we better do something. What can we do? And their initial answers to what can we do grew out of their ideology and the emotional and mental constraints of their belief systems of where the, where the world is at. Mm. And what I think we're seeing now is a beginning of the the grief stage of letting go hmm. of, of all of the imaginings and that allows space for new stuff to come in hmm. because, as you say, they're now realising that they can't just let self-employed people starve. It's it's not a good look hmm. when you know, people that you otherwise have been going, yes, you need to be entrepreneurs, are, are now destitute. And they definitely don't have it right, but I'm seeing um, more of an expansiveness of what is possible. And what I would like to believe... I've been reading a lot of metamodern politics, which is kind of politics beyond tribalism, mm. and hoping that there's enough bandwidth within the ruling classes, enough wisdom with those in power to begin to look at alternatives and not to have the cognitive dissonance of, you know, this stands outside my ideology, therefore mm. I cannot absorb it. Because universal basic income, UBI, I, th I think is a really interesting idea. But my problem with it is, how do you define universal? Hmm. What do you consider basic? And what do you do about the rents? Rent, rents on the uh, on the total scale, rents of people who acquire money by not doing any work. Because if I if we give everybody at round numbers a thousand pounds a month, and the rents go up by nine hundred pounds a month, we have just discovered the fastest and most efficient way of shoveling public money into private hands hmm. that has ever yet been invented. And there are people 
I would venture to suggest in my <laughs> endeavour to not be tribal, uh, there are people for whom that would be a great thing. Mm. Um, and it's and we need not to do that. But then how do you control rents in a way that doesn't become totalitarian? Mm. And I don't know. So th- this is one of the reasons why during my kind of economics exploration, I moved from thinking UBI was great to thinking what we needed was universal basic services because if everybody has access to housing, food, water, power, broadband, travel and basics of food, then you can't take those away. Yeah. Um, And I think uh, then it's a question of how do you provide those in ways that that are equitable and flourishing? Um, And... I, you know, there are models around the world. There's the Mondragon model, there's the Preston model. There's, there's places where this is being looked at. Mm. Um, and the whole concept of what money is. I we, we have some solar panels. We put them in after the government had ended all of its feed-in tariffs because they don't like giving you stuff for producing power. But there's a thing called solar coin where you get something that's effectively Bitcoin for producing power. And I have yet to look into whether you can actually spend this on anything that you might want <laughs> to spend it on. But but imagine if the government decided to insulate every home and put solar panels on every roof and then paid people according to the amount of power mm. that was produced. It, you know, it's, money is an idea. This is what I find so fascinating about people, about the magic money tree that they've just disco- <laughs> discovered. They're realising that... That money is, and particularly now, you don't even have to print it. Mm. You just type some numbers into a computer and, and, it. and it's there. Mm. And and the banks have been doing this for for several decades now. They've been making money out of nothing and selling it to us at a profit and then paying themselves bonuses based on how well they did that. And, and this is a huge <laughs> scam. <laughs> Massive and, scam. And now we can look at, okay, so maybe you like to print, you know, make some of this money out of nothing and give it to ordinary people. What would happen? I do wonder how this whole economy will change because, you know, you start thinking about how people spend and what we spend on. And, um, of course, I mean, I was reading yesterday that Bezos is making absolute killings out of, you know, all the amount that people Mm. are buying online through Mm. Amazon. Um, But on the flip side, a lot of us are realising how much we spend on other things. Like, I'm realising for the first time how much I spend just on food for two people for a week um and that now I can spend a bit more on that because I'm not spending on other things and so there is this sense of understanding maybe where where the money goes and what's actually valuable Mm. um you know how many plastic iPhone cases are you going to buy in lockdown you're not you're really not gonna so things like this and I wonder whether and it's something that which which concerns me and excites me in almost equal measure on the one hand i think okay well it'd be nice if things revert semi to normal with fewer flights in the sky but i can still get around and do the work that i was doing before on the other hand i think well what might it look like if money were no longer the driving force because actually it may be that we turn the page um several steps away that's beyond our ability to imagine right now we turn enough pages and we land in a chapter in which money is not the thing yes. that governs exchange of value yes. and what what could that look like what might there be in its place um and i don't know if we have a model yet for that but i love the idea of you talk about local resilience networks you know what what does it mean if we start to actually provide value in a way that 
that everyone, kind of like an exchange, but if you can provide food and in exchange someone else is providing you with energy, a bartering system that's more direct, is it possible to go back, but also bring it up to date and technologically in an evolved way that means that we're not just regressing? Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts about, are you thinking about potential ways that this could look? Because I know it's at the moment very imaginal. Yes. I think two steps. So, So the first and the most important of these is we can't know how it looks until we know how it feels. Hmm. So what I am really doing with my meditations at the moment is, and I I recorded a meditation and put it out on um, on the resources page for for absolute free distribution to anyone who wants it, is to really work on if we got everything right from this moment forward, without defining what right looks like, how would it feel? How would my heart space feel? How would my body feel? And and what I'm finding is an extraordinary sense of release and relief Mm. of tensions that I didn't know I was holding, a sense of safety, a sense of courage of being able to just be Mm. me and, you know, finding my authentic self, which sounds like one of these things that, you know, there's (laughs) memes flipping around on Facebook. But, But what does that actually feel like? And it's so liberating. And so I'm really quite hard trying to bring together a a group of film television people directors producers writers and if anybody listening wants to join let me know um because i think we can't we could get lost down the how could this be done economically and there are i'm on a zoom call later tonight with the new economics foundation exactly looking at this but we need to know how it feels and then i think we need a sense of a narrative of how that feeling could play out. And we haven't. You know, for all of our recent evolutionary history, we have narratives of disaster. Mm. You know, we know how Mad Max feels. We know how 28 Days Later feels. We know how Handmaid's Tale feels. Yes. And what they look like. I am not aware of anything as big as those, or indeed anything, that really looks at how could it be if we got it right? And 10 years ago, when I said that to people, I was met with, oh, yeah, but that would be kind of utopian, don't you think? We don't know. Nobody wants to. I, you know, I still think that Monsanto will will dig its heels in and endeavor to do everything that it possibly can just to make huge amounts of money by destroying the entire ecosphere. So um, I don't think it'll be utopian. But I think if we don't really pour extraordinary amounts of our focus and bandwidth into feeling our way forward and then creating a a creative narrative of how that feeling plays out, then we can begin to build the the economic models that get us there. Otherwise, we're just, I think, iterating more of what we already have. I think Kate Rayworth is one of my absolute heroes. She wrote Donut Economics, which is one of those economic books that everybody should read. And her premise is that at present, we have a system where the economy must grow, whether people and the planet flourish or not. And what we need to get to is a system where people and the planet flourish, whether or not the economy grows. So that as a premise is, and I, yeah, I in my naivety, thought that this was, this was a basic fundamental tenet of human life. And then I said it to our local Conservative MP as, as a basis for a potential evening event. And he said, but we said no politics. I'm going, but... Why? Why is it? 
people in the planet flourishing? Is is that possible? And he said, yes. <laughs> that's extraordinary that we've gotten to that stage. That that's, yeah, that that's even a question. Yeah, because the idea that growth is not the primary thing was, uh, this was last November though, and I, I'm kind of planning the email to him now going, you know that conversation we're going to have? Could we could we find a way to depoliticize it? Because I think it's really essential. But I but I do think we need to get to the feeling first. How does that sit with you as an idea? Yeah, I, I really like it. I think also, especially when you when you look at the ways in which we make our decisions, the primary motivation is usually an emotional one. So if we have a sense of what that feels like first, then it becomes much easier for us to recognize options and opportunities, however small they might be, that align with that feeling. That feeling, um, yes. And I think also the other thing is when you think about the ways in which we create, so everything that sits around me in the room or with you or with the person listening, that's come out of someone's imagination, right? So there has to yeah. be a starting point, a creative point. And I think it's much easier to create when you have a longing to do so, which generally doesn't come out of fear. Although I know that great innovation also comes out of need. Yeah. But I think if we compare need with this forward driving, this this desire towards something, then maybe that's the most empowering and um, creative way to approach the problem. Mm. I really like the idea of that. Yeah. Mm. You just seem to, you have a very strong creative network where you are, given the podcast that you've been doing. And I'm thinking that if, if we could bring together a creative network where we're kind of co-creating that, or each of us exploring that feeling and then sharing it, something quite amazing could arise out of that I agree I think especially one of the things you know we talk about having a narrative that's that gives us a window into what a different world could be like I think there's different ways that we are able to access that so for instance remember when I was very young reading this book by Starhawk called The Fifth Sacred Thing and she very recently produced this thick doorstep of a book called The City of Refuge, which fast forwards into the, the future. Oh, and it's exactly about this. It's when life has broken down, everything's under a surveillance state. Um, what do you do? How do you rebuild? And it touches on a lot of these themes. Um, so I find it really interesting to hear stories played out in that way. Or for instance, one of my beloved shows, Star Trek, which I grew up with, um, and talking about what might it look like to have different factions collaborate for a common goal mm. um or music for instance i find that beyond for me at least beyond the visual arts if you can sing a piece of music that names what's happening in the situation in which we all find ourselves and takes you through the stages of denial and grief and loss and takes you to a point where it can emerge you into a different space it can create that sense of hope and of the sun rising again after a difficult night even if it rises on a totally different landscape, I think mm. that kind of journey through something emotionally can be extremely powerful and can give people enough space to have enough hope to envision something different. Yeah, and music and song go in at such a deep limbic level. It's a way of another way of bypassing our whole yes but mm. senses. Um, mm. I was talking to Rob Hopkins, whose whose book is called From What Is to What If. And he plays a game with, um, he's done it with, with quite quite big companies and then also with just local uh, resilience groups where somebody puts out an idea and you're allowed to say, so they go, what if people on the planet were able to flourish? And you're allowed to answer with a another what if. So yes, and what if 
everything were pink. I don't know. Um, or, or a yes and. But you can't, you're not allowed to say yes but. You're not allowed to say anything except another what if or a yes and. And it just opens people up. It's like and improv think, classes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally is. But but focused on, you know, what if there were no cars in the street? Yeah. You know, he's done this with local little local networks. Yeah, what, what if? What, yes, and we could hold parties every other day. Not in lockdown, but yes. Um <laughs> And I just think those sorts of things, if we were back to you and I and people like us have the enormous privilege of this time being not only bearable, but probably quite fertile. Mm-hmm. And if we can use that fertility to create the space for something different to emerge, I think it would be a wonderful thing. So I'm wondering, if we think on that for a bit, one of the things that I really admire and also wish I could have more of that you that you do is you engage very heartily in these practices. So you you enact your values um, and you're very actively involved in creating dialogue and space and activity for people to engage more deeply themselves with the things that you're talking about. Mm. Um, and as I listen to you and I listen to the Accidental Gods podcast and I go through the fantastic resources on your platform, um, Thank you. I find myself on the one hand aspiring to do more of that. And on the other hand, my lived reality is, fuck, you know, my program for my podcast has crashed again. That's another four hours down the chute and I'm supposed to be getting enlightened. And how am I supposed to do this from my tiny flat? And and it's just, and on the one hand, it's actually very, very funny. But on the other, I'm just thinking, you know, this isn't the best use of my time. And how do you, which in itself is all noise as well. How do you pass all of that? And for people who are listening, who think, actually, you know, I'm also frazzled and I'm split in mm. all these directions. And this mm. lockdown was supposed to give some free time back. Yeah, and um, it really hasn't. And it really hasn't. How, yeah, yeah what, what? would you suggest like how do you find ways to to help people manage with this yes and it is <laughs> and i am totally aware that i have a massive privilege because i always worked from home so um, up to a point my self-organizing it was already there but i, I did mm. get an email this morning from one of my wonderful wonderful dreaming students who's also an accidental god student who's got one child aged five and one aged two and 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 they're all at home and and how do you you know how do you even yeah. manage to have time to pee never mind anything else <laughs> um and so i think one of the things that is really working for me and that i'm trying to pass on is that it doesn't take any extra time to be fully present in every moment but it is a skill and it's a learned skill that only comes with practice um and so even if you can only commit to being fully present every time you wash your hands, which we're all doing quite a lot at the moment, <laughs> um, that's a start. You know, it's, it's, there is an extraordinary luxury to be able to sit down and actually meditate for a full hour. And it definitely, we know neurologically, neurophysiologically, that changes neuronal structures. But the heart math people have also done work on if you do three minutes of their heart coherence work in any form, which is essentially slow your breathing down, sit, slow your breathing down, bring your attention to your heart space, breathe directly into your heart space and intentionally feel a positive affect. And their key ones are gratitude, care, compassion, appreciation. But anything, you know, you feel hope. If you can feel something that you can evoke in your heart space, three minutes of that will produce measurable physiological change. Mm. 
And then the next time it will be easier because it's not as if that's actually an easy thing to do. It took me years to be able to actually evoke a sense of gratitude that felt real and wasn't just an idea. But once it happens for a little split second, <laughs> you know, then the next split second is a little bit longer. So I think we have created for ourselves lives of extraordinary distraction. Yes. And yes, you know, it, yeah, something crashes and it's like, oh, God, that's half my day gone <laughs> trying to fix a bit of technology. Why did it not work in the first place? And, and or, you know, the dog gets sick, whatever. You know, I think learning to slow down would be one of the great lessons of this. I haven't found it yet, but I'm still hoping. But being fully present, I can be fully present while I'm cooking. Faith will laugh if she hears this because I very rarely cook. But I can be fully present doing the washing up. I can be fully present walking the dog. I can be fully present talking to you now. Mm. And it feels different to the kind of slight fuzz where my attention is in four different places and mm. one of them is in the past and one of them is in the future. Yeah. And one of them is looking at my little dopamine. I've been been really looking a lot recently at the difference between dopamine and serotonin pathways. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the online stuff is triggering dopamine. And it is inherently, it's it's linear pathways that wear out effectively. The more dopamine we have, the more we need to get the same effect. And eventually they just stop. Those, those neurons just give up. And they give us a short-lived hit of what the guy I'm reading is Robert Lustig calls pleasure. Serotonin is big branching pathways throughout our brains, not just these little linear ones, that don't wear out. They don't downregulate. And we don't keep trying to seek to get more stuff to feed mm. them. They're more what he calls happiness, contentment. And so I'm really looking at how can we create more contentment and thereby need less pleasure because the pleasure, the, the dopamine pathways are addictive. And I think a lot of, for me, a lot of the kind of spray of grasping at Facebook or Twitter or whatever, is feeding those little dopamine pathways. Yes. And it takes my attention. I can feel it as a, as a drag. If I can feed more of the serotonin pathways, feed more of the contentment, which can last a lifetime. The thing about the dopamine is it's short and then you need another hit. Whereas if people have experienced that moment of total connectivity, the memory of that, lasts forever and the ability to reach back for that and rekindle it is there for the rest of our lives whatever else we're doing and I'm so I'm thinking that if we can do more of that collectively and and that also feeds into that felt sense of if I do my meditations of how does it feel like if we get it right my heart space is in in that place and doesn't have hanging around it the yes but that if I try and evoke gratitude. I can evoke gratitude, but I'm also now aware that hovering around the outside of that, like a an envelope, is the fear waiting to come back in. The fear of loss, the fear of lack, the fear of not feeling the world is abundant, the fear of becoming a bag lady, the fear of, I don't know, the, the Tories winning power forever and turning us into, <laughs> you know, the 10,000 year Reich of Steve Bannon's greatest dreams. All of those are kind of sitting there. I have created those. But what happens if I let them all go? What happen how do I feel if none of those obtains and we get it right? And and it 
the, the sense of all of those boundaries falling away has been huge and really generative. I feel like a different person and, and, and in a good way. I'm very happy with the different <laughs> person that arises out of this. So I think, I think for me that's a big one in terms of what are we doing with this time is being fully present and then being able to evoke that contentment. Does that answer the question that you asked? Yeah. And also it strikes me as you were giving this image, um, for everyone listening, you can't see the way that um, Manda was using her hands to describe the serotonin networks being something kind of like an encompassing ecosystem or web around the brain. But what struck me as I saw you doing that physically was that this is precisely the kind of ecosystem, collaborative system that we need to, to create, that I would suggest that we need to create physically in in whatever form we can, whether locally or globally, in order to create something new coming out of this. So this idea of infinite linear growth and burning through pathways, the dopaminergic, yeah. kind of like a dopamine-driven, consuming, always yeah. better, bigger, faster, stronger um, projection towards a devouring economy, uh, that, that it's a hunger that can never be filled. And it seems to me that that maps on, maybe it's just sort of my imaginative brain wanting to link these concepts, but it maps onto this never satiable hunger for that next hit. Yeah. And of course, when you strip all of that away and you think, you know, what if I hold in my mind the times in my life when I have felt most whole? And for me, it's in the company of either a beautiful landscape or a beloved other or friends and very little of it ever has anything to do with a bigger house a bigger car um fancy yeah. shoes whatever it is and so i wonder when we're thinking about this dopaminergic versus serotonin kind of mapping of pleasure or contentment or hedonism versus eudaimonia like when we think about these as dance partners where do we want to spend more of our time and how do we use that to then design systems that are more aligned with one or the other? Because at the moment, I think we're in the, the fast hits, rapid mm. growth, devouring without being satiated, dopamine side of things. Um, totally, yeah. So the question then arises of how do we create these networks, the, the what, we would, what we can call the serotonin networks, the contentment networks. How do we mm. create them within ourselves and then how do we create them on a wider scale? I don't know the answer to that. You know, up to a point, that's what accidental gods, I think, is existing to try and do. But mm. there have to be other ways also. Um, but I think if we can do that, and if we can then harness that to the felt sense visioning of how could the world be different, then then it could actually be different, which leaves, you know fills me with great hope when, when otherwise I can... I, I can look at the world and, and find great despair. You know, I, I, I watch Trump doing whatever he's doing and, 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 you know, my entire being falls off a cliff. I think oh, this, is, this is just, there is actual craziness in the world. Why? Um, but, but I don't, and so then I come to one of the concepts that's been quite alive in my world for quite a while is that concept of critical mass of people. Mm. And what is the critical mass? Because uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion had this idea of three and a half percent, but that yes. was based on, as you said, the suffragettes or ending slavery or ending apartheid or, or getting to gay marriage in various parts of the world. Mm. But each of these was increasing the franchise of the existing system. They weren't mm. changing the entire system. So I'm not sure that three and a half percent works. And then I've been reading... 
Hansi Freinacht, who's I've just got to the point where it's just annoyed me too much and I've had to stop. <laughs> but um, but a lot of his ideas are good. It's just the deeply patronising tone that isn't. <laughs> but he's looking at layers of society, and um, it seems that at the what we what he calls the meta modern level, which is the level that we're talking about now, the kind of beyond postmodern, um, that it's one percent of of the entire global population that at the moment is within this or has the capacity to work at this level. And so I'm so I'm hitting internal, do we need a specific number as a tipping point, in which case 1% of 7 billion is, is quite a lot of people? Or do we need a percentage of the population, in which case I think we're probably not going to get it. And, and so then the next question is, if there are the different layers of framing of how the world is, how do we help people to rise up is there even or is it just too patronizing to suggest that if you're locked in a fear-based hyper-nationalist let's say white supremacist worldview that you are locked into because you are genuinely afraid that anybody who doesn't fit that model is going to destroy your way of life can we shift people from that to something more generative and communitarian and do we have the right even to try, and I don't know the answer to that. These are these are things that I'm hmm. staring at quite hard and trying to. Whether that's just me exerting some kind of bizarre, kind of meta modern white privilege, um, <laughs> or or whether by creating the networks and by helping people to find community and connectivity and and that sense of contributing to a greater whole that is is so obvious at the moment. Does that break down what are essentially sociological structures that people have created just to define people? And does it allow more fluidity? And does it allow people to to shift into new ways of being? Yeah, that's oof, that's super interesting. One of the things that sort of really jumps out for me, this idea of do we have the right to try to create a different system? And I think one of the things that I find helpful sometimes is flipping the framing on its head and saying, okay, well, what do the other side, if we're going to talk, I know there's sort of a sense of tribalism, but what does the other position that it's at, that sits at the polar opposite end, okay. what do they think? What, what's their position? What's their assumption? And I think that if we're taking it from the perspective of, let's just say, a fear-based response, if things change, I'm going to be annihilated. That's kind of when we we can all share that at some level. Mm. This sense of we've had this fear at some point in our lives, or at some rudimentary level, we can access that. So if you think, okay, well, a person who's in that state is likely to want to fight more often than not to preserve their life, to preserve the lives of the people they love, um, and so it's an understandable thing. And then you think, okay, well, I'll sort of slice this in one way. If we think about ways in which so from a tech angle, the current pandemic can provide fertile ground for expanding the surveillance state. Um, the people who want that, who have a lot to gain from data gathering uh, and setting up legislation in a time of, of emergency, they are absolutely going to not question whether they have a right. They're going to make it their absolute imperative to yeah. be able to get as fast and um, as deep as quickly as possible. So I think if we're thinking about it in terms of rights, taking it back again to this position of what right do I have to want to create 
or build towards a system in which we don't have to fear for our lives as much, in which we can reduce overall suffering, in which we can encourage and help one another to thrive. Um, and when I say one another, I mean the entire interconnected web of life. Yeah. I think we absolutely have the right to to envision ways in which that might be possible. Um, because, I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're all going to die. We're living here with a certain amount of time. How do we want to spend that time? Basically, it comes down to that. And I know it's, I'm saying it sort of slightly flippantly, but but there is there is a lot to that. And do you want to be at the point of our deathbed thinking, well, you know, I just didn't think I had the right to try and make the world a better place. Yeah, and, yeah okay. And we all yes, have different visions point. of what that means. But like, I think if it, if it can be, and this is where my sort of liberal values come in, but if we can be of a mindset, or maybe it's an old traditional Buddhist value of reducing as much suffering as possible, I would definitely stick my flag in that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and say, yep, That's... I'm with it. Let's let's do it. Brilliant. You know, if right. we fail, stop we fail, about that. but what option do we have? Come on. Yeah. yeah, no, you're right. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. I thought we just took one aspect of what you said there and ran with it. But um, yeah, I feel no, quite strongly good. about that, apparently. Yeah. yeah, it's good. Very good. Right. So then, then we're back to, okay, if we have the right. How? And, and in fact, we possibly have the imperative. Yes, how do we do that? Um, yeah, so maybe that's maybe we'll just go away and think about that for a month and then do another podcast on what we've yeah. come up with. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, there was an there was an interview that I heard once between um, this chap. I'm going to try and see if I remember this correctly. It was an Orthodox Jew and a white supremacist at oh. university, and they ended up having dinners together. Oh um, yes, yes, I remember. It was this extraordinary interview, and I think what really struck me about this because I have been on the tail end of being, well, put into. I've experienced terror. Put it that way. In certain situations, one or two in particular. And I know that if you're in a state of fear, dipping towards terror, the only thing really that gets you out of it, I think, is understanding that the other person knows where you are. Yeah. And at least if you can feel that the other person has hit some kind of rock bottom that you're experiencing, you may have enough openness within you to be able to build something and get yourselves out. And so I think when we are experiencing abject fear and we're in a position where we're trying to defend against new or different or change maybe the first thing is to say all right we get that you're an adject fear i've experienced mm. this too what is it that you care most about and then orient the conversation about that what are mm. other ways to protect what you care about to build on what you care about like i don't know i think again it, it maybe it comes down to this sort of deep compassionate reframing um yeah what do you think Gosh, I was I was um, heading down polyvagal rabbit holes as you were speaking, and, um, but <laughs> let's, let's, that's a different um, different podcast possibly. Um, and and also, I, one of the great models that I really enjoyed that we came across at Schumacher was uh, Tom Crompton's Common Cause Foundation, and he it's a very visual thing. I need to probably try and find it. And we'll put it in the show notes mm. um, because he's looked at something he calls intrinsic and extrinsic framing and that we all have the capacity to be encouraged by both intrinsic senses of self-worth and mm -hmm. extrinsic values judged by other people. Mm. And that the more that you speak to somebody's intrinsic values, so if, if we share community, cooperation, commitment, all of those things that allow us to feel more heart open. As we talk to people about that, 
their senses of those also increase. Mm. And at the same time, it's it's on a it's on a seesaw. As one goes up, the other goes down. So the more that I think about community and um, how can I contribute to this, the less I'm worried by whether I'm, someone's impressed by the size of my car. Yes. Um, and the more I sit around talking to people whose whose value structure is, are you wearing the right watch? Do you have the right car? Do you take the right holidays? The more those increase within my sense of worth and my intrinsic senses dip. So mm. hmm. it gives us a way to connect to people that is part of our shared common heritage. And and I think that's one of the things that I'm finding really quite inspiring about some of the responses. I don't know if you've heard in Britain, there's, a, there's some 99-year-old war veteran oh, who committed yes. to, to walking around his garden <laughs> and has, you know, he's raising millions of pounds for the NHS. Yeah. And, and the part yeah. of me is like, oh, go that guy. That's totally amazing. And another part is, you know, we shouldn't need 99-year-old guys on their Zimmer frame to be raising money for the yes. NHS guys. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely, it triggers empathy in people and it triggers a sense of community and that wanting to contribute. Um, and so the more that we can do that, the more we can bring people together, the more I think one of the things that has really struck me in the last couple of months is we have to get rid of the tribalism. Mm -hmm. Tribalism puts us into non-conducive frames of mind and it it erects cognitive dissonance barriers. That if I am deeply invested in my own tribal position, and I speak as a very newly ex-Labour activist, <laughs> I left the day Keir Starmer was elected, <laughs> then then I cannot, it's it's physiologically impossible for me to take on board things that I label at an amygdaloid level to be of the other tribe. And that happens at so much faster a pace than my frontal cortex can cope with, that the decision is made and there is no logical arguing past it. So we have got to get people out of the tribalism in order to be able to create the kind of world that we need that is beyond tribal structures. So I'm looking at how can we, how can we move beyond tribalism without that sounding like a tribal position? And I think the only way to do that is to yeah. is to really talk, speak to people's intrinsic value systems, uh, and finding the language that works. I think the other thing that's really interesting that's kind of the the paradox within what we're saying is name naming how things are, without falling into the trap mm. of seeing things only in that way. So, for instance, something that I find really interesting that connects for me with with that is the naming of the visible and less visible key workers who are keeping everything going, mm. the people who are previously overlooked. And on the one hand, it requires a naming of reality as it has stood and as it stands now, but it also mm. invites us to value those people differently. And hopefully valuing one another differently um, will then translate into the way in which we perceive people when we come out of this. And I think that's the thing that I'm most attentive to, I want to say, kind of cautious about and also hopeful for, that the changes that we are seeing now, the appreciation that's shifted, the visibility of the work that people do, the valuing of that work, um, that that's something that hopefully will continue long enough for, again, this shared humanity to be the thing that we focus on, so that when we come out, it will be less about labels and will be more about um, mm. Mm. people showing up as they are, without all of this extra 
labeling. I, and I know that we, you know, with a background in psychology, I know that we label for a reason. We like to simplify. We like to make things easier for us to understand and to, to pass, if you like. But couldn't we use a different a different way of doing that? So I think, yeah, this this thing of what is it that we value as a society and the fact that we're not going to get out of this through individual action. We can't get out of this individually. It has to be a collaborative effort. Either we sink together or we swim together. And that is becoming ever more apparent to me. Um, fierce individualist as sometimes I think I might be. Uh, and it's really making me realise, one, the vulnerability of the individual, but two, the power of the collective. Um, and each lending our own individual skills and abilities to help one another. Um, yeah. Yeah, beyond politics, beyond all of that. Yes. And I'm aware that time is running on. I think <laughs> this is so interesting, but I also think we we kind of almost have looped back to where we started, which we've done mm. spirals around the same point, which is that we are individuals. Each of us can only ever change ourselves. But if in doing the changing of ourselves, we can then change the collective dream of humanity then I think the future is is unknowable but also totally amazingly gorgeous and that that is worth working for. I'm sure there's other things that we could talk about. You had a very good question that you were asking people that I can't remember what it is now. <laughs> Final one is what question do you want people to dwell with at this moment? So if I were to answer that my answer is how would it feel if we got it right from this moment? Mm. Really, how would it feel in my heart space? Don't think about it. This is not a thought game. This is a sit down and imagine if the world were absolutely as good as it could possibly be, how does it feel? How do I feel? I think I think if everybody did that for five minutes a day, the world would be a different place. So what would your question be? I think my question would be, I'm thinking about this in terms of a visual exercise, like if you imagine yourself at the end of a long and rich life and you're peacefully on your deathbed and you think back, you think, yeah, I lived the fullest life I could have done. What would that person suggest to you right now in how you can live your life Perfect. differently in this moment? Okay, and then tell us, people. <laughs> we have two podcasts. We have The Hive. We have Accidental Gods. And this is going to go out on both of them. So you can answer either of us. Tell us. It would be really interesting if our joint listenership, <laughs> peoples of our podcasts, actually did this. And then, and then fed back. We could, we could begin to make this network actually work. That would be quite something. Alrighty, I think we might be done. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram at Natalie Nahai. And if you enjoy the show, please give it a rating as it reaches new ears. And also, if there's someone that you feel could be supported by the content of this series, just ping on the link. Thank you again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>